navigate the journey to becoming a great lawyer with expert guidance on topics that range from trial skills to corner office management. Here you will learn how to tap into your potential for legal greatness. I'm Andrew Smiley, and this is The Mentor, ESQ. For today's podcast, I'm very excited to share with you a lecture that my partner Rosa Feeney, who is an insurance coverage specialist, uh, conducted a few weeks ago about the Comprehensive Insurance Disclosure Act called CIDA or CEDA. And she explains in great detail how the act works and what plaintiffs and defense counsel need to know about it. So listen on and enjoy. Thanks again for joining me and my partner Rosa on the Mentor ESQ podcast. Thank you everybody for joining me on this beautiful sunny July afternoon (laughs) to talk about insurance coverage. Um, So just by way of background, um, I have been practicing um, a practicing litigating attorney for 30 years and uh, in the area of personal injury and property damage with a focus on insurance coverage litigation. Um, I joined Smiley and Smiley, who I'm sure you all know, um, handle you know very significant personal injury cases. And now we've expanded the practice to add the insurance coverage um, aspects of personal injury litigation. Um, Michelle, I would ask that she add my uh, contact information to the chat. Um, in there, you'll see that there's a Calendly link. So if you'd like, after the presentation, you can email me or um, or click on the link for the Calendly link and make an appointment. It's a 15-minute one-on-one. You could talk about anything you'd like. So um, I look forward to hearing from all you guys. Um, so I started my career off working uh, for a defense firm and handling defense cases. And very quickly, I started handling insurance coverage litigation cases. Um, and I've been doing it ever since. I've handled cases for carriers for the majority of my career. Um, And as you defendants know out there, um, you know, when you're handling defense cases, you're handling a lot of cases. You're handling volumes and volumes of cases. And so you get a lot of experience. So I've handled quite a few coverage matters in all respects on the insurance company side. And then probably about 15 years ago, I started expanding my practice to handling policyholder work. So with the policyholder work, what we would do is obviously I represent the insureds in cases where they have a problem with their insurance or their insurance carriers name them in a declaratory judgment action, or just trying to resolve things without litigation where the carriers aren't going to pay. And I got involved in that aspect. And I really enjoyed the personal um, touch of having the clients be, you know, the policyholders that I was representing. Um, So when I came in uh, with Smiley and Smiley, you know, we decided that we were going to focus on the policyholder insurance work, as well as plaintiff's insurance coverage counsel, which I'll explain in a minute. Um, I think that when, you know, you're handling policyholder work and you're representing insurance companies, there's a lot of conflicts that occur. And I think that this is just a cleaner uh, way of handling these cases and being able to adequately represent the clients. So um, what we've started doing is we're also representing plaintiff uh, policyholders, and you'll see why plaintiffs and their, they're not policyholders, plaintiffs and in their actions against policyholders. And you'll see why this is relevant to CIDA in a minute. (laughs) Um, 
And in those cases, I, I work with firms where, you know, there's a lot of disclaimers in their cases. They want to know the viability of the case. They want to know what's the, the viability of, a, of the disclaimer. How strong is this? Where am I going to be able to recover from? And I assist them in navigating through that process. Um, plaintiffs in New York are at a disadvantage when it comes to challenging insurance coverage issues because they don't have standing. So in New York, we have a provision in insurance law 3420, and it's called private right of actions statute, where they can only commence a suit against the carrier for a defendant if they have an unsatisfied judgment that's been unsatisfied for 30 days. So a plaintiff can't just start a DJ action against a defendant's insurance carrier. Okay, so you know, this, this is relevant because that's why I get engaged early on in these cases and why the CIDA, the Comprehensive Insurance Disclosure Act, has become so important um, for the plaintiffs and defendants um, because it allows the disclosure right up front. It allows an evaluation of what coverage is out there, where how the plaintiff is going to recover, and how the defendants are going to transfer the risk, right? So, you know, being having the the experience in both the plaintiffs and defendants side, I feel like I have a pretty good perspective on how this side is important for both sides, plaintiff and defendants. And you know, for the plaintiffs, it's obviously getting a recovery and an adequate recovery for their clients. And for the defendants, it's transferring the risk appropriately. So, how much coverage you have for your client, primary excess, if you're a defendant, and how do you transfer it off to somebody else? another entity that you have a contract with or something else where they have insurance and now there's a bunch of layers of insurance. And, and so for this reason, the CIDA, I think, has really become an important tool in litigation. Um, so what is, what is CIDA? So CIDA is really just an amendment to CPLR 3101F. Um, by way of background, and I think this is kind of explains why there's a little bit of confusion out there about, about CIDA. Back in 2021, uh, probably the middle of the end of the year in 2021, that's when I first became aware of bills that were being passed in the Senate and the Assembly that were about this Comprehensive Insurance Disclosure Act. And when it first came out, um, there were a lot of provisions that were you know, objectionable to the defense bar. Um, they then I'm going to go over those so I can explain what they were. And um, so at that time, when they when it first came out and it was like towards the end of the year, um, you know, the defense didn't know what was required here, what they had to do to respond, um, what the implications were going to be if they didn't respond, um, how strictly this was going to be construed. Um, if they had to prepare all of these responses, what the time frame was to prepare the responses, it was going to cost the carriers a bunch of money because, you know, you think about it, in, when the site first came out, one of the biggest provisions that it had was that it applied to all pending claims. So, you know, put yourself back to 2021, right? We're all coming off of COVID. The cases had been sitting around. Cases hadn't been, tons of cases weren't tried. And because of that, there were so many old cases. I mean, I know I had cases back on, on my docket from 2015 at that time. So 
it became a huge concern for the defense bar. Um, you know, they started to really pay attention to this. And I believe, if I'm not incorrect, at, on the eve, like December, the last week, I think, of December of 2021, uh, Governor Hochul passed the bill. Um, and as they stood, they had these provisions in them that the defendants didn't didn't like. Um what ended up happening, and I'm going to go through what those provisions were, but just to fast forward, what happened was then um, there was an amendment, and in February of 2022, uh, she passed the amendment, and that is what we currently have in place, all right? And that amendment is retroactive to January 1 of 2022, okay? So just to quickly kind of go through some of the provisions that were there that were negotiated and then later revised. All right. Um, the first one was the issue of application to all pending cases. Um, so that was pared down. Um, now it applies to all cases that were commenced on or after January 1st of 2022. Okay. So that was the first provision. The second one was it was a 60-day requirement to respond, um, and now it's 90 days to respond from the answer. So any commands, actions commenced after January 1st, 2022, you have 90 days to respond to the insurance disclosure. Um, the next provision was allowing you or disclosing the name of the adjuster, the phone number, the email, you had to disclose the name of the third-party administrator. You had to disclose the name of whoever the third-party administrator was reporting to. That got that got pared down, and we're going to talk about that. Um, the next one, which was done away with, was that they were, you had to identify all lawsuits um, that had eroded or reduced the policies. That was eliminated. And the last one that was eliminated was that you had to disclose if there were attorney's fees that eroded the policies, you had to disclose the attorneys that were paid the fees and how much the policies were eroded, okay? Those were all eliminated. Um, so the current version is a little bit more, is a little bit leaner. Um, the current version has some, as I said, some good provisions and we're gonna talk about it. The main gist of the CIDA is disclosure of all applicable policies or policies that may apply, and we're going to talk about that. So really, all CITA did was codify something that was already in place. Um, I remember when I first started practicing, nobody disclosed the policies. You just did a disclosure, and you had the insurance company and the policy limits and the policy period, right? Then cases went on, and now the, the deck pages, people were starting to disclose deck pages. And then Suddenly they realized, wait a minute, I'm entitled to the policy. And then people started to, attorneys started disclosing entire policies. Um, I think it happens more often in the bigger cases, construction litigation cases. You see it all the time. Cases where there's a lot of exposure, you'll see the policies um, disclosed, especially when there's issues of who's next in line and priority of coverage. So it was always a requirement, as long as I can remember, that you really had to disclose the policy. So CIDA didn't really change that. Um, I think, you know, one of the good things that's come out of CIDA is it's going to 
make attorneys really think about what kind of coverage is out there for their cases. Um, I mean, let's face it, primary insurance policies, if you look at this, right, let's look in the commercial context. Most of them are a million dollars. Maybe some of them are $2 million on these, these construction litigation cases that I see. And that hasn't changed since I remember, since I started practicing 30 years ago, they were always a million dollars. So if you think about the value of injury cases today, the value of injury cases have continued to increase where primary policies have not. So the disclosure of excess policies now has become increasingly important. I mean, if you take a look at, uh, again, I'm gonna keep referring to the construction litigation cases because there's a lot of, like, a lot of litigation in this area. And if you take a look at that area, that's a situation where because of the um, labor laws, an owner is, can be statutorily liable for someone gets injured, falls off a ladder, let's just say. And they're statutorily liable, whether they're negligent or not. So there's an asset there. There's a building. And this is something that you know, needs to be protected. And that's what insurance is for, to protect the asset. And so while in the past, disclosing your excess policy wasn't that big of a deal, it really didn't get disclosed, you were never going to get there. Now it is routinely impacted um, and the excess policies need to be disclosed. Um, so I'm going to talk about several key points of the legislation, and then I'm going to go into details of the actual um, provisions. So the amendment mandates the disclosure of applicable insurance policies that may be liable to satisfy all or part of a judgment, right? That's a problematic phrase, and we're going to talk about that. What does that mean? <laughs> may be liable. We'll talk about that in a bit. The next thing it requires is the disclosure of information about the total limits available, taking into account erosion of the policy, all right? And we're going to talk about some of that. And by the way, I Michelle has my the materials that she's distributed in there. I go through all this. I put the statute in there for you. And I also prepared a sample discovery demand for disclosure, which is good for the defendants and plaintiffs. Both can use it. Um, so the, the section I want to talk about right now is the third prong of it, which is the certification requirement. This is new, right? So under CPLR 3122, the certification, it has to be an, an affidavit form and it has to be signed by the defendant and the defendant's attorney, okay? So what CIDA did was it imposed a due diligence obligation on the defendants to disclose, in, to figure out what policies are out there and disclose all possible policies, right? So how do you satisfy the due diligence requirement? Um, I think there's a couple of ways that you could do that. Um, one of them is I recommend that when you open your file, that you send a letter to your client and you say to your client, hey, look, do you have any policies that can cover this? Now, I have seen uh, defense counsel send letters. Everybody knows what policy they're defending under, right? You as a defense counsel, you get your case from X carrier, and that's the coverage that your client has. You're aware of that. But oftentimes they'll send a letter to the client and they'll say, the, you know, the insured, and they'll say, 
Do you have any umbrella or excess policies? You know, these phrases are, are very ambiguous. People don't know what that means. In fact, coverage attorneys fight about what is excess and umbrella all the time. Just because something uh, isn't called excess or umbrella doesn't mean it's not excess or umbrella. So my recommendation is not that you ask for if they have excess or umbrella policies, ask them, what insurance do you have? And, and then let them send it to you. And then from there, we'll talk about determining, you know, what's what to disclose and what not to disclose. So I'm going to give you a, a good example of this. So we recently got a, um, a case where a woman was injured on a jet ski. And before the litigation started, we reached out to the defendant and we said, hey, you know, what, what insurance do you have? And he said, oh, I have this boat policy. And he gives us the boat policy. Boat policy had $300,000 limit on it. So then we discussed it and we said, what about, what about excess policy or homeowners or homeowner excess policy? So we went back and we asked him, do you have a homeowner's policy or an umbrella policy? And he disclosed those policies. And lo and behold, there was coverage under the umbrella policy for the jet ski, right? There was another million dollars available to protect the defendant and for the recovery of the plaintiff, right? So that's a perfect example of where you wouldn't think you know, insured might not even think to, to look at his umbrella policy for his boat. Um, that's that's one situation. Another situation in, in the personal auto context is when you're looking at, you know, somebody lives with three other people and there are other policies there. Ask your client, not, don't just ask them, do you have any umbrella coverage? They might not even know what that is. You can say to them, do you have any other policies? Does Do any of your kids, anybody who lives with you have any other insurance? Let me see it, right? And that's the way that I would request it for that prong of the due diligence um, that you have to perform under CIDA, okay? Let's look at the commercial policies now, right? Let's move on. And, and these are a little bit more difficult, right? Commercial clients have a lot of different policies out there, right? So they might not think to even disclose some of these policies to you, right? So you have, let's just, I'm going to give you an example. Again, you have a, a commercial auto case, right? Somebody injured and there's a commercial auto. And now you, the client only gives you the commercial auto policy and that's what you disclose, right? And, and this actually happened in a case. After the case was resolved against, there was three injured parties, two of the injured parties, um, the cases were settled and the other one was not. And when the insured finally realized that he was going to be personally exposed, his business was going to be personally exposed, he starts digging and he finds a commercial general liability policy and he finds a professional liability policy. So we take a look at it and, and I think there's coverage under these two policies for this particular circumstance, Right. The carrier doesn't think there's coverage, but I think there's coverage, right? So this is a circumstance where you wouldn't, an insured wouldn't think to give you those policies. So I think it's important um, as, as for the defense bar in particular to prompt your client, not just with, with asking them, give me your umbrella policy, ask them what insurance do you have out there to, to protect you? All right. Um, you know, there's a, a mistaken assumption that, for example, in homeowners, same thing with GL, a CGL policy, commercial general liability policy, that they don't cover auto accidents. That's not always the case. You know, so 
again, it just goes to my point, request copies, just ask them, give me copies of your policies. For today's CLE, the first attendance verification code is POD882. Again, that's POD882. All right. So just going back. So the first prong that I would recommend uh, as part of your due diligence is that letter to the insured and have them respond in writing and say, this is what I have. Um, The second thing that I think you can do is when you send that initial letter to the client, you can also ask the client to sign an authorization to let you uh, contact their broker or their agent. They're going to know all the policies that this person or company has. All right. So and that the, I think if you perform those two tasks, that really will comply with the due diligence requirements of what you need to do. To, to you can't do anything else. There's it's if you don't know about the policies, you don't know. But you need to at least ask about them and try to to get them for purposes of a protecting your client, um, and you know to to just make sure that you're doing your due diligence. On the plaintiff side of things, I think that you know. You can also take a look at these scenarios and say, hey, what about that policy or that policy or that policy, right? That may be applicable and you're entitled to see those policies. Um, so I think that that will, that will go towards helping um, with at least with getting following you know, the, the statute and also complying with the due diligence requirements. Um, you cannot rely upon the insurance carrier to tell you what policies are out there. We're going to talk about a case later that that I found from the uh, federal court that discusses this. The the carrier doesn't always know all the other policies that are out there. They know their policy, and and it's possible that an umbrella carrier knows the policies below that policy because they're listed on their policy. But a primary carrier doesn't always know the umbrella policies that are out there. Okay, so. You cannot rely upon it. And, and notably, the, the CIDA doesn't put any obligation on the insurance carrier. It only puts the obligation on the defendant and the defendant's counsel. Okay, so hopefully the new CIDA with this requirement is going to really reduce the situation where those 11th hour policies pop up. I mean, I don't know if everybody, I see this because I'm, I'm coverage counsel, I guess. But I see this a lot, where all of a sudden the case is going on for years, and now it's trial, and now this other policy pops up. And the insured finds this other policy or remembers that they had this other insurance policy. And this is hugely problematic. It's problematic for the attorney. Um, It's problematic for the insured. The carrier is going to disclaim coverage because they weren't involved in the case all along. Um, And now this opens up a lot of problems for a case. So so get ahead of it um, and, and try to get the information right away. Um, so the last kind of prong I want to talk about, a key point, is the, the mandatory disclosure is to be done within 90 days of the answer. Um, you know, we're going to discuss in a little bit, you know, what are the repercussions? What are the sanctions? What are the, you know, what's the penalty if you don't respond to this, right? And, and you know, this is a CPLR discovery provision. So your um, recourse is the same as what you would have if you're not getting other discovery that you want in a case, right? So, you know, if you need something, you need a disclosure and you're not getting it, what do you have to do? You got to make a motion, right? 
Um, I don't see the motions uh, to compel to be a big issue here. I don't think it's going to be, unless it's a policy that you want and they don't want to give you. But I don't see it being a big issue. I think that it's going to be, give me the policy, you know, here's my demand. And if, and I would recommend actually that you issue these demands right away. As soon as you get your answer, serve your demand for, for the site of disclosure. I mean, they're required to do it whether you demand it or not, but that at least prompts the response. Um, and, and I would do it right away to get your response. Same thing for the defendants. As soon as that co-defendant or that third party defendant answers the complaint, serve your, your demands, just like you would with everything else, serve a separate CIDA demand. Um, and, and that way, at least it's out there. If they, they don't give you the policies within 90 days, you're going to call and say, where are my policies? And, you know, of course, you're going to give them time to get the policies that they needed. But, you know, everybody needs to be on top of, of securing the policies and getting the compliance. Um, but I don't see that as a big part of uh, what's going to turn out to be litigation. What I think is going to be a, a bigger uh, issue with CIDA is the requirement that you disclose all primary excess and umbrella policies that may be liable to satisfy part or all of the judgment. So this is, this is problematic. Who's making the decision of what may be responsible to, to pay part of the judgment? I mean, the, the defense attorney presumably is not a coverage lawyer. Um, the defendant presumably not a coverage lawyer. Um, you know, you can't rely upon the carrier's opinion as to what's covered and what's not covered. So, you know, this is a problematic provision. Um, you know, I think that, that to me, it's not your job to figure out necessarily, um, you know, is this going to apply or it's not going to apply? I'm not going to disclose it as a defense attorney. I wouldn't take that chance. I would just, if you get the policy and, you, you know, there's any chance that it could be, could be applicable, I would just disclose it. Um, so I'm going to give you a couple of examples of things that I've actually seen happen um, and that I think, you know, I think that these practices need to be curbed, needs to stop. And I think CIDA will go far in stopping it. Um, I've seen situations where uh, you have a case and there's a, a primary and an umbrella policy um, and the defendants don't disclose the umbrella policy. Why? Because they don't think it applies because the, the injuries are never going to exceed the primary policy, right? I mean, I've even heard people say, oh, well, um, I don't want the plaintiff to think he can get more than the primary policy, right? The injury is never going to reach the excess limits. That is problematic. I, I don't think you should be doing that. I think that now with the CIDA in particular and signing the certification, there could be a lot of problems. Um, I think you need to disclose it. Um, I found a case out of Westchester County from 2021. It's not a CIDA case. It, 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 the case was not instituted um, at the time of the implementation of, of CIDA, but it was interesting and it's in the materials. Um, I, the, the name of the case is Kajitorian. I hope I didn't, I didn't destroy that name versus Servadone. And it's in there. It's a slip-op case from Westchester County. And the court talking about the disclosure of the excess policy says, without accurate information, the plaintiff can't fully evaluate their case and determine whether they should litigate or whether they should settle the case before trial. So I think that that's a very important factor. 
uh, in this. And and I think that's important for 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 everybody with respect to defendants. I mean, you want to know every policy that though that your client has for purposes of transferring the risk. You want to know every policy layers and layers and layers of excess that they may carry to help transfer the risk, be it a subcontractor or a lessee, whatever it is. Um, you want to know all the policies, not just the primary policy. And I, I wouldn't run the risk if I was a defendant of not disclosing the excess policy, because that can cause significant problems down the road. Um, another scenario that I have seen is where um, there are other policies but the carrier has disclaimed. Okay, so the CITES specifically says in the in the, the provision, it says the disclosure required is not an admission that the alleged damages or injuries are covered by the disclosed policies. All right. So it acknowledges that if you're disclosing this information, it's it's not a an admission that there's coverage under those policies. You're just saying here are the policies. Um so I'm going to give you another example of, of when something like this recently came up. So um, again, back to the case where there was um, a multi-car accident and um, you know two of the cases get settled. The third case doesn't get settled. Um, now, um, you know, we discover these other policies. We think they apply. The carrier doesn't think they apply. The carrier disclaims coverage, right? The defense attorney doesn't know what to do. So the defense attorney says, well, you know, here's here's the, the certification. This is the policy that the primary auto policy that we have, and it's eroded. And we refuse to have the client sign the certification because we said, no, we believe that policy applies. And the statute says may apply. So you need to disclose that policy to the plaintiff. Um, the defense counsel had a legitimate concern. Um, her concern was, well, I don't want to make a misrepresentation to the plaintiff. You know, I don't want there to be some kind of a, of a misleading representation that all this coverage is out there and it's not. And so the counsel suggested that she was going to attach a copy of the um, disclaimer. And I, she's fully able to do that. And there's no prohibition against doing that. And that's actually a very wise move, I think, on her part um, to disclose her a, a copy of the disclaimer or whatever it is that you've gotten some kind of a carrier letter saying there's no coverage or there's a reservation of rights. I, I think it's wise to disclose it so that the plaintiff is aware of what coverage and there can be no argument that you as a defendant made a misrepresentation as to the coverage. Um, the next requirement is that you have to disclose a complete copy of all the policies. So, you know, again, when I was a young associate, they didn't even disclose the policies. Um, the 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 CIDA allows for the um, plaintiff to accept a copy of the declaration page if they agree in writing, and then they don't waive their right to get the full policy at a later date. But I don't know why anybody would agree to that. I mean, a PDF is a PDF. You're going to get it in your inbox, and it's going to have 10 pages, or it's going to have 100 pages. Um I mean, why not get the policy, the entire policy? So I don't really see the utility of that portion of a CIDA. Um, and I would never agree not to just get the entire policy. Um, so, but that is in there. Um, 
The next prong is that now you have to disclose the name and email address of the adjuster to the case, right? So, you know, I know that we as defendants, um, we want to guard our adjusters. We don't want plaintiffs calling the adjusters. We don't want the co-defendants calling the adjusters. The adjusters don't want to be called. They want your defense counsel to call them and tell them what's going on. They don't want these other parties calling them. But the truth is that unless it's coverage litigation, where the insurance carrier is represented by an attorney, then attorneys can contact the adjuster. And sometimes it helps expedite the files and expedite the cases, right? As a, as a plaintiff, from that perspective, it sometimes it moves the cases. Attorneys are busy. You have depositions. You're on trial. Whatever it is that's going on, you can't get back to the plaintiff's attorney. All they want to do is talk settlement. They want to know if the carrier has everything they need. Do you need anything else from me to evaluate the case? So that was part of the purpose of the CIDA is to expedite and to open up that kind of communication. Um, the current version of the CIDA took out the phone number. I don't know why it did that, but it took out the phone number. I mean, you can easily find the phone number. So that's not insurmountable. It gives you the name and the email address and you know the company. So um, that's not a big deal in my opinion. Um, but that is something that is required to be disclosed. Um, the next thing that's required is you have to disclose the total available limits, taking into consideration um, any erosion of the policy. So right, when does this come up? So I've seen this come up in a couple of situations. Um, one is where there are multiple claimants, but one policy, right? So one policy period, right? So in that situation, you know, a lot of times I've seen the carriers settle some of the cases and don't settle the others. Um, now under the current CIDA, you must disclose if there's been an erosion to the policy and how much is left on that policy. Um, another example, and this is, this is another reason why I think you should always get the policy. Sometimes these policies have what's called eroding limits. So in other words, there, for example, defense costs will erode the policy. Um, so in those cases, for example, like we, we recently, we have a case where there's a self-insured retention of a certain amount, and then there's all these other policies above it. That self-insured retention is eroding. So the insured is paying defense costs out of that self-insured retention. And so the longer this case goes on and the longer defendants are, are working the files, the less money that's going to be available to compensate the plaintiff and protect the defendant in, an, in indemnification, right? Um, sometimes there are policies that just have eroding limits. Um, it's just the way that they're, that they're, they're formate, formatted. So you want to take a look at that. You want to know the longer this case goes on, how um, are the policies being eroded? Is there going to be enough out there to compensate my client? Is there going to be enough out there to protect my client if you're a defendant from um, in, in a, a risk transfer situation? You want to make sure that, you know, you might want to expedite the settlement of this case. The, the trial is going to cost X amount of money. The legal fees are going to eat up, you know, $100,000 in, in coverage. And that is a factor that as a plaintiff and a defendant, that you should take into account when you're evaluating your case and the strategy for settling your case. Um, the new CIDA applies to everybody, right? Defendants, 
Third party defendants, defendants on the cross claim, defendants on the counterclaim. Um, so just assume it applies to you <laughs> and just respond to this to the site of disclosure. It doesn't apply to no fault claims. Um, they carved that out for whatever reason. The other important um, prong of the statute is that the defendants are required to update that information throughout the course of the litigation at very specific points. All right. So you have to disclose, you have to update your disclosure at the filing of the note of issue. Um, if there is any kind of court scheduled um, a settlement conference scheduled, um, if there's a, a voluntary mediation that's scheduled, um, and when the case is called for trial. Okay. Um, again, this is really important because this, this again will help um, eliminate that those 11th hour policies. It'll also help keep everybody abreast of the policies as they're being eroded, right? Now, in the beginning of the case, when you first did your disclosure, there was no erosion because there were three cases pending and none of them were settled. Now you found out that the policies are being eroded. How are you going to find that out? That's information that the carriers have. Um, I don't know another way of finding that out. Uh, so, you know, that's a situation where the policy under which you're representing this, this company or person, if that policy is, is eroded, the carrier will know that information. So my recommendation would be, you know, once that note of issue is filed, you know, it's triggered to contact the carrier and say, has there been any erosion? I mean, some of the policies are not eroding policies, so you don't have to worry about it. But if it's a multi a multi car accident, um, or there's just multiple plaintiffs for whatever reason, whatever kind of case it is, those are the kinds of cases that you need to be alerted to the possible erosion of your policies. Now, the last prong of the CIDA is that the obligation to disclose the policies continues for sixty days after settlement or entry of final judgment. So if for some reason a policy appears within 60 days of settlement or judgment, you have to disclose that to the parties. Now, again, I'm going to go back to the, that, that one sample case that has a lot of these issues in it. Um, in that case, that's exactly what happened. The case was the three case, two cases were settled. Third case was out there. And now all of a sudden this other policy was located. Now, my case, that case is in a CIDA case. That's a post-CIDA case, pre-CIDA case, excuse me. But the, the issue is that under the CIDA, you'd be required to disclose that. So you can imagine what that's going to do. That's going to blow up the settlements. If the plaintiffs feel that they weren't fully compensated and they accepted less than the whole because they knew they just that there wasn't enough coverage, that's going to blow everything up. So, you know, that's a very very onerous, um, you know, a very important requirement and onerous. If it happens, it happens. What are you going to do? You have to disclose the limits. All right, let's talk about quickly the, um, the penalty for noncompliance. All right, so CIDA doesn't set forth a penalty, right? It's a disclosure requirement, and we said it before. You're going to make your motion, and I'm assuming most of you know what a motion to compel is, but, but if you don't, just a typical motion that you have to make to get the defendant or plaintiff or whoever it is to disclose certain information that they're not giving you, okay? So 
if you have to make emotion, you're going to make emotion. Then it takes how many days for this motion to get submitted. And then, you know, some, it takes how many months for the, there to be a decision. And usually on the first shot out of the box, the defendant is not going to be precluded. The court's going to say, oh, you have 15 days or 20 days or 30 days, right? Now you just wasted three months, you know? And so, you know, really a motion to compel really has, it doesn't have much um, force here or much power here. And that's really not the biggest problem that I see. What I see as the biggest threat of penalty is possible sanctions for not disclosing policies, um, also a malpractice suit, right? So, you know, if you are aware that there's a policy out there and you don't disclose it because strategically you don't want to disclose it, you could have a problem. I mean, you you could be sanctioned. And I'm going to read uh, uh, go over a case with you in a minute where somebody was sanctioned. Um, you could be sued in malpractice. Let's say you didn't discover, we didn't, we didn't notify the excess carrier of this case, right? It's not related to the primary carrier. It's not the same carrier under the policy under which you're defending. It's another carrier. And you don't get the information and you don't notify the excess carrier. And now all of a sudden you find out that this policy the carrier is going to disclaim coverage because you didn't notify them and you, you're going to have a malpractice suit on your hands because the insured is going to have personal exposure. So I think it's important that the, the cited doesn't have a direct penalty provision, but I think that the, that we're going to see litigation on this issue in the future if for whatever reason the policies are not being properly disclosed. So, you know, again, I would recommend that everybody send those letters in the beginning and show your due diligence and show that you've asked for the policies, you know, and perhaps even at the update stage, that note of issue, you know, reach out to the client and tell them, look, you know, this, this case is getting certified for trial. You know, make sure, are you sure you don't have any other policies? There's nothing else out there. This is a big case. This could impact you. There's only this much coverage on the case. And, you know, and advise them of, of the, the possible problems. And maybe the, you know, the client will, will look and see something that they didn't previously see. So I couldn't find as of this morning, I couldn't find any cases discussing CIDA yet. And, you know, I guess it'll take a while before we see any. Um, but the last um, case I really wanted to, to talk about is it was a federal court case and it's in the materials. I only cited two cases in the materials. So um, it's Bouchard versus United States Tennis Association. It's Eastern District of New York case. So in that case, the defendant, you know, federal court's a lot stricter than state court. And and the federal court, the, you know, now just like with CIDA, you need to make those disclosures without being prompted. You don't need a discovery demand to make it. You just need to make it. Um, and in the federal court, Rule 26, it's the same thing. So for whatever reason, this defendant doesn't disclose this this policy. And um, all of a sudden, 18 months later, they disclosed the policy. The court um, sanctioned the plaintiff, the defendant, excuse me. And the, the defendant, as part of his opposition to the motion, said, you know, I didn't do it on purpose. I didn't know. The carrier didn't tell me. I asked the carrier and the carrier just didn't tell me that this policy was out there. And the court said, the lack of intent does not matter. And the court also said, the fact that you relied upon the carrier is unacceptable. Um, if, if the carrier mis misinforms you or conveys wrong information, 
you have to do your due diligence to determine whether or not that's true, unless it's something that you can't, right? So for example, on the erosion issue, I imagine you there's really nothing you could do. You got to rely on the carrier. That's the only person that has the information, right? But on what policies are out there, you do have control of that. And I think it's important, you know, to keep in mind that this is, I think we're going to start to see more of these cases um, if people are not properly responding to the new legislation. So we have 10 minutes left, but I just want to, so I just want to quickly just kind of go over what the actual provisions are, because I've, there's been a lot of talk here about, you know, what goes on and, and obligations and what have you. But the bottom line is you got to get all your policies, ask your client, get it in writing, get, ask them about the broker, get an authorization and get all your information, prepare your certification, respond, you know, within the 90 days, if you can, and also disclose all the available limits taking into account any erosion. And then you also want to update the disclosure, right? So update it at the note of issue. And again, it just should just be triggers when these things occur. You, you're going to do a note of issue report to your carrier. You're going to um, also ask them um, and the insured, are there any other policies, any other erosion, any erosion going on, anything I should know about. All right. So it's again, note of issue, court conference, settlement conferences, mediations, and um, trial. And then again, for 60 days after the settlement of the case. Um, so I think I pretty much covered the statute. It's a pretty simple statute. And as I've said, it doesn't, there's not a lot of meat to it, um, but I think it's a very important provision that we um, all need to pay attention to and is now part of the practice, whether we like it or not. Um, I think, you know, I, I, I saw in one case, um, a plaintiff's firm, what they did was they served a disclo disclosure demand for the discovery right away, as soon as they got an answer, and they filed it. Now, they filed it on NICEF. I don't know if that's appropriate. If you're supposed to file it on NICEF or not. People say you're not supposed to do it, but they did. And I think it's effective in a sense because, um, you know, it, it kind of alerts everybody that this is out there. This is an important requirement and that you need to respond. And, and the plaintiff needs that information to evaluate their case and determine how far they're going to take this case. If, if, if there's only so much coverage out there and you know you have a, say, $4 million injury, but there's only $2 million in coverage, then, you know, and, and, the, and the defendant is, is judgment proof, then, you know, where are you going with it? Um, you know, the, the bigger problems occur in situations like the labor law cases where there are assets. So in that case, you know, if there's not enough coverage, you know, unfortunately for the defendant, his asset may get attached. But, you know, for, for the most part in the other cases, you know, the recommendation is it, it may be something that you just want to sell. You're going to go three years or four years to get the same amount of money, and then you're going to be in the same boat and it's two or three years or four years later. Um, so I think, you know, Again, I think it's a it's a great provision, an important provision that we'll need to comply with, and uh, something that we should we'll be seeing litigation in the future. All right, so I got some questions here. So, first question: If you have a case commenced prior to January first of twenty two, are defendants still requ required to produce copies of policies on which the carriers disclaimed, since CIDA is a codification of a previously required disclosure? Well, the truth is that you know. 
if CIDA doesn't apply, technically you don't, you're not going to respond according to CIDA, but you do have to disclose applicable policies. And I personally don't think it's the job of the defendant to determine which policies apply and which ones don't. So to be safe in that situation, my opinion would be to disclose the policy and disclose a copy of the disclaimer. Um, you know, the plaintiff probably knows about the disclaimer, but maybe not. Um, so I would do it that way. There's really no reason not to, to be honest. Um, so I think you'd be safest doing that. Um, next question. I have a case commenced part of January 22. Um, oh, this is kind of the same question. Um, okay. Oh, that's okay. That's done. Sorry about that. Okay. Next question. Disclosing the complete copy of the policy. What do you think a court's position would be on redacting the policy premium info paid? Okay, so as a coverage lawyer and having done a lot of defense work, we always redacted the premium. Um, we, we redacted um, anything, anything like that. We would redact. Um, sometimes I'd even, you know, redact the self-insured retention. It would depend on, on the situation or the case. Um, so yes, absolutely redacting the premium um, is, is permissible. And in fact, I believe as you should do it to protect your client's information. Um, okay. Oh, Teresa Nuccio. Shout out, Teresa. I haven't seen you in a while. So Teresa and I used to litigate together. So she says, um, I still remember that case we had together with the gap in drop-down coverage when the carrier went into liquidation. It's definitely important to know the coverage. Exactly. Exactly. We had a case together. Carrier went into, lit into liquidation. Um, that's a problematic situation. Um, and then when, when carriers go into liquidation generally, and I'm not an expert on liquidation, but, um, you know, the liquidation bureau takes over the case and there is a certain, uh, a stay of the litigation is technically lifted up to a certain amount, up to the policy limit. Um, and Teresa and I had a very, um, a very interesting case on that one. I still remember that one, Teresa. Um, okay. Next question. Does the policy disclosure have to be filed automatically or only upon receipt of demand for policy information? Okay, I, I had answered this one. It is an automatic disclosure. Um, while I would recommend, you know, if the, if the plaintiffs and defendants want to serve their discovery uh, demand, so plaintiffs serving it on defendants, defendants serving it on co-defendants, um, I would certainly do it. I mean, you can you can expand. I, I gave a sample discovery demand, but, you know, I really just did it by the book. Um, you know, you can expand it if you feel that based upon maybe some of the things you learned today, you want to ask for additional policies, expand it. If the defendants don't want to disclose that, then there may be, you know, some motion practice over that. But um, I would um, absolutely, you know, respond to it within the 90 days. It's not required that a demand be served. Um, okay, next one. Is it necessary? Okay, same question for plaintiffs to serve a demand. And yes, you have to, you do not have to serve a demand. It's automatic, the CIDA. Um, okay. Um, do attorney's fees costs erodes the policy limit? It depends. Again, this is where you want to see the policy. And I know that we at the firm, we, you know, we have a practice that when we have our meetings and we're reviewing coverage on these cases, that's one of the things that we look at. We we pull out the policies and we say, take a look and I'll take a look or whoever else takes a look. And we look at them and we determine whether or not it's an eroding 
limit policy. Um, I do recall um, not that long ago, we had a case where for whatever reason, the policy limits were less, we couldn't understand it was an auto case. And then um, we realized that it was because the property damage for the car came out of the policy limit. Um, and that was why it was less. It wasn't that defense costs were eroding it. It was that the property damage on the car um, came out of it. So that is something that you need to look at each policy. And it's 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 in there. It'll tell you whether or not the limits erode or eroded by anything. Um, okay, this same question. Um, could you please provide some citation or docket number for the new cases? Okay, I don't have, as I mentioned, the new, there are, I have not found any cases talking about CITA yet. Uh, the cases that I cited that are in the materials, um, and I don't have, I guess I do have them here. Um, the cases that I cited, one was a Westchester County case, and it's a, um, a slip-op case, the case that I cannot pronounce the first name, so I apologize, but Cajeturian versus Servadone. It's a 2021 New York slip op 33582, Westchester County 2021. It's got some great language in there. Um, and then the last case I cited was um, Boucher versus United States Tennis Association, uh, 2017 Lexus 230196, Eastern District of New York, 2017. And that was the case with the sanctions. Um, so good language in that case too. Um, okay. Next. Um, other than asking the carrier and client about what policies may provide coverage, what else can you do to identify such policies? So unfortunately, there's very little other than the broker. As I mentioned, if you can get your client's broker, that's, that's gold. Because the broker knows, and typically people have one broker or one agent. You don't usually have multiple. Um, so, you know, I think that that, especially in the commercial context, that's such a simple thing to do is just get an authorization, call the broker, and the broker will send you either a certificate of insurance showing all the policies with the policy numbers and the policy limits. Um, and then you can try and get those policies and then you can disclose the policies. Um, I mean, it's it's really a great resource. I mean, the other thing, just on a simpler level, for example, on an auto case, right? On an auto case, the police accident report has an insurance code on it, right? And that insurance code, you can look it up, you Google it, and that's going to tell you who the carrier is for the auto. It might not tell you the umbrella policy, but it will at least tell you who the carrier is for the auto. Unfortunately, there is no database like that for commercial policies or homeowner policies, it, as far as I know, um, there, there's no database for that. So that, those are the ways that you can um, find out the insurance coverage. Okay, next question. It says, if there's no change in insurance information, does a defendant still have to provide an update as to no change on those landmark dates? The statute's silent. I, I mean, it doesn't say that you have to provide something saying there's no change. Uh, so you know, you don't have to do that. If you feel that, you know, at least it shows your due diligence, um, kind of protects you not to say later on somebody to say, oh, they didn't even look for it, you know? So, you know, perhaps that's not a bad idea of sending just an email, a letter. It doesn't have to be a formal response saying we've been advised. There's no updates to the insurance disclosure, period. You know, I think it, it can be as simple as that. Okay. 
Um, how do you publicly disclose the request to where? I'm not sure I understand that question. Um, I mean, I, I, all, you know, I think that you, you just, what you do is you serve your demand. I mean, that's the way you're supposed to do it. You, you, you can serve your demand or you don't have to. You know, they can, if you don't serve a demand, then you're just relying upon the plaintiff I, or defendant. I personally would serve a demand. Um, uh, it's a form, you just serve it. And at least it, it's something also to document your file that you serve a demand and also something that you know as a tick, tickler that you need to get a response to. So I hope that answered your question there. Okay. Can you request this information from insurance carrier prior to initiating litigation? Example, you're trying to negotiate a settlement with the claim rep prior to the defendant having legal representation. Okay. So there is a provision um, in the insurance law where the defense, the carrier has to disclose the limits within 30 days of receiving a demand. I think it's 30 days, maybe 45 days. I hope I'm not confusing that. Maybe 45 days of receiving the request, right? But they don't have to give you the policy. So that is a big difference. They have to disclose how much coverage there is, but they don't have to give you a copy of the policy because that's confidential information. And until litigation is commenced, they're not required. Um, I know personally that, that from handling a lot of uh, carrier cases, some of the carriers will not disclose it. Um, what I have seen, though, is I've seen plaintiffs reach out to the defendant and say, because they're not represented, and say, will you sign an authorization <clears throat> allowing me to get a copy of your policy? And sometimes they'll sign it. So, you know, if you really want a copy of that policy for whatever reason, you don't want to commence suit, reach out to the defendant and, and say, look, we want a copy of your policy. Um, we'd like to try and resolve this case within the policy, but I need a copy and see what See if they'll sign something authorizing the carrier to release the policy. If they do, then they're going to have to release it. Okay. Um, oh, thank you, Annie. <laughs> okay. Um, next question. So if the defendant does not submit the claim for coverage, for example, because has made too many claims previously, and doesn't want to risk the policy being canceled or renewed, does the spot the policy still need to be disclosed? Um, yes, <laughs> it does need to be disclosed. Um, it's not up to the defendant whether or not his policy is up for coverage or to cover the claim. Um, you know, I have seen this happen as well. And um, unfortunately, it happens quite often that the defendant doesn't want to let their carrier know. Um, but, you know, what you can do in those situations, obviously, is tell them, you know, you, you, we're going to sue you. We're going to, you know, attach whatever asset you have. You're going to tell them. You're going to take a default. You're going to serve them with a default. You know, if they answer, then either they have the, the attorneys from the carrier that are representing them or they have private counsel. And, um, you know, I have I, I've yet to see a case where there's private counsel and they have insurance coverage. Maybe that has happened. Um, so, you know, you really the, the only thing that you can do to compel somebody like that is to issue a subpoena. Um, you know, sometimes that doesn't work either. I mean, I, I currently have a case like that where we can't get the carrier information on this defendant. Um, and we've tried everything. Um, we've tried getting to the broker, finding the broker. 
we can't find the broker. You know, I have a feeling in my case, it just isn't any coverage that this person didn't get insurance. Um, but um, so th- that's a very good question. And I think that, you know, the only way to do it is to compel them by, by, by a subpoena. Okay. Um, let's see. Let's see. I didn't recognize the acronym of where you said the insurance companies were alerted to a potential claim. I'm sorry. I'm not sure if I remember what I said there. Um, so I'll, I'll think about that. Maybe reach out to me uh, in an email or a phone. Give me a phone or call and I'll, I'll go over it with you. Um, okay. If you have a case where the defendant did not submit an answer and you move for default and get a judgment, are you allowed to go after the insurance company? You put on notice 30 days after the judgment. Okay. Good question. So if you read um, 3420, um, and I forget which subsection is, might be six. If you read that provision, and that's the direct right of action statute, that says that a, a plaintiff cannot commence a direct right of action against an insurance company unless they have a judgment that is remains unsatisfied for 30 days. So, you know, when you have a default, you don't have a monetary judgment. You have a default judgment. But how is the carrier going to satisfy that? I mean, it's a really good question. And I, if somebody knows the answer, I would love to know the answer. It's something that I, I actually thought about this recently myself. Uh, is it possible after a default? Um, but uh, again, you, you don't have a full judgment unless it's, let's say it's the only defendant in the case. Now you have an inquest. That's a different story. You have an inquest, you have an amount of money, then absolutely, you know, you can you can file against the carrier. Um, I'm just not sure, and I don't want to give you the wrong information. That's an interesting uh, concept to be tested, to be honest, whether or not after a default, you can uh, you can file suit directly against the carrier. Okay, so case is pre-2022, but impleter is post-2022. Good question. Does CIDA now come into play only for the third-party defendant or also for the existing defendants from pre-2022 case? You know, it, it's, it says cases commenced. So I, I don't know. That's a, that's a really good question also. I mean, I would argue it applies. I mean, if you, you've commenced a, a third-party action against a, a defendant, I would say 100% applies to that third-party defendant. Um, with respect to the other defendants, probably not. Um, you know, but you can demand it. And, you know, honestly, under the disclosure rules, you know, prior to, to the CIDA, there are cases that talk about 3101. If you review that Westchester County case, that's prior to CIDA. And the court is just citing to, to CPLR, to 3101, and that there, that you as a party are entitled to whatever information is necessary, Right. For the, for the prosecution of your case. So I would say demand it, you know, send a demand. That's the information that you want from the other parties. And if they don't respond, you might have to make a motion. Okay. Um, next question. Let's see. It seems that there are increasing instances where a commercial auto tortfeasor also has the state minimum BI limits of 25 on their commercial auto policies. If this is the case, then asking the tortfeasor business to disclose all insurance policies, is it the only option that plaintiff's attorney has? 
I mean, you know, probably, I mean, I think if they only have a $25,000 policy, I haven't really, I haven't seen um, $25,000 commercial auto policies recently. So um, I'd be interested in seeing that, but um, you know, I think that you can ask them to disclose all of their insurance policies. You never know. It depends on the kind of business. You know, the, the case that I have that I was talking about was a very, is a very unique situation. Um, so not all cases are going to fall under that, where there's a policy that covers an auto policy, an auto accident that's not an auto policy. But um, certainly I would ask them for copies of all their policies and review the policies. Okay, next question. Does CIDA only apply to cases that are in suit? Yes. Um, the CIDA only applies to cases that have been placed in the suit because the statute only um, applies to um, answers of cases filed after January 1st, and then it's the, the, the CIDA response is triggered upon the answer, so there has to be litigation. Um, okay. What prompted the legislation? Is there are any reports on the results? There, there are no reports on the results that I'm aware of. Um, I don't know what prompted the legislation, but when you look at, um, you know, when they they when they when they have the bills in the at the top of the bill, they always have the purpose of the bill, and in this particular case, um, they indicated that the purpose of the bill was to uh, allow for the prompt disclosure of adequate and, and accurate insurance information. And then also at the top of it, and I'm gonna read, cause I kinda, I, I, I cited it in the materials. The other thing it says is um, it's to reduce the use of dilatory tactics by compelling disclosure of not only the available um, insurance but also the eroded policies. So, I mean, that must've come from someplace. <laughs> I don't know where. Um, I hope that answered your question there. Um, okay. What about buying insurance direct, no broker? An online thing. Oh, that's good. Um, well, again, all, all you can do is demand it from the defendant. Um, you know, you can demand it from him. You can, you know, say, I need copies of all your policies and maybe lay it out. If it's a business that you're talking about, then I would say, um, you know, I want copies of all your your primary umbrella, um, auto, commercial liability. Um, you know, if it's a personal auto situation, then you want to say primary umbrella, copies of any policies that anybody in your household has, you know, and you're going to demand that kind of information, um, you know, from from you could demand it, or if it's your client that you're asking about, then then that's how you're going to ask the client. But you have just lay out exactly what it is that you're looking for. Okay. Now, um, Albany should amend this act so that it is entitled Comprehensive Insurance Claim and Disclosure Act. And then the acronym will be in time for summer cicada. <laughs> Pretty funny. Okay. <laughs> we have a comedian in the group. All right. Um, let's see. When representing some larger commercial defendants, excess layers sometimes reach into the hundreds of millions, often five or more layers. How much must be disclosed? Well, as a defendant, I would disclose it all. I mean, I had this at my prior firm. We had, you know, some big 
big claims. And there were some claims where I remember one in particular that were there were like five or six different policies and layers upon layers upon layers. And, you know, what we did when I was on the defendant side of things is um, on those kind of more complicated uh, disclosures, they would have their coverage people, me and other people at the firm, review it and help them go through the policies and what we were supposed to disclose. But I would say, yes, it, it CIDA doesn't limit it to, a, to what you think the case is worth. CIDA just says, policies that may apply. So again, this is what I was saying earlier, where I think, you know, there's going to be litigation over this at some point. Um, but I wouldn't take the chance, I would just disclose the, you know, whatever is out there. Okay. Um, hold on a second, somehow or another, I went down to the bottom. Okay. I represent an attorney who was sued for allegedly making a misrepresentation in a real estate transaction. Complete nonsense. In any event, the attorney chose to hire a private attorney rather than notify his insurance carrier and get a malpractice attorney represent him. Um, plaintiff asked for an insurance disclosure. If provided, this would, of course, defeat the point of hiring a private attorney. And this is very similar to the other question. Does the Insurance Disclosure Act require the policy to be provided? Um, I assume the act primarily deals with negligence cases, unlike the one I referred to. Well, you know, CIDA doesn't just refer to negligence cases. It's a CPLR provision. Um, you know, so so when you read it, it, the way that the statute reads, and I'm going to, while we're talking, um, I am going to, um, yeah, in the materials that we sent around, I cite to it. So we'll have to take a look at that. But um, I, I think you have to disclose the policies. I mean, it, it's all policies that may be applicable. So it doesn't say policies under which you're being defended. Um, so if it did, then it would only be the primary policy. And so that, you know, to me, makes me believe that you need to disclose all policies. And, you know, the, the defendant doesn't get to choose what he gets to disclose. It's, it's what the law provides. And the law provides he must disclose any policies that may be applicable. Um, you know, if he refuses to disclose that information, then, you know, as an attorney, then you're going to have to deal with that. Um, you know, and you're going to have to, you know, figure out some way of making sure that you are, you covered yourself uh, in that respect. But he's, in my opinion, he, he should have to, or the company should have to disclose that information. Okay. Um, can you bring a DJ action for a disclaimer of coverage before getting a judgment if the defendant assigns their right to bring the action? Okay, I have seen this. Um, and yes, I believe you can. Um, so I think it has to be done correctly. Um, I have I have seen that where basically the defendant agrees um, in a stipulation to be liable up to the limits of the policy and the, and the plaintiff agrees to take that amount. Um, and then they assign their rights and then they go after the carrier. So I have seen that happen. If an affidavit of no excess or excess slash umbrella policy is not disclosed served, what remedy does a plaintiff have besides moving for sanctions? This is the only open discovery preventing, preventing an MVA case from being certified. Um, I think that you will have to cert you have to make a motion. I mean, that's what all the only thing I can think about. Uh, I think you have to make a motion. 
um, to compel the affidavit and no access. I don't think that there's another way. Um, yeah, and I think that'll prompt them to, to get it for you. So um, uh, that would be my opinion as to how you resolve that issue. Um, okay, if you're defending a case under an ROR disclaimer, partial disclaimer, how can a defense counsel ask his client to sign a certification that the policy is applicable to potentially indemnify? Okay, so this is, again, what happened in the case that I have. And in my opinion, you're asking them, your, your client is believes that there's coverage under that policy, that it may apply, may is the word, then the certification should say, you know, whatever it says, it says, this is the best, to the best of my abilities, this is a complete and accurate disclosure, right? And then as I said, in that other case, what the attorney did was she attached a copy of the ROR and she attached a copy of the disclaimer um, so that it alerted the plaintiff that we're saying this is the coverage that we're aware of, but we can't tell you if it's going to apply to indemnify. Okay. What is the duty of a defendant which chooses not to request coverage and has the funds to cover any damages award? Okay, this is sort of similar to the other um, the other situation. Um, again, that's the CITA doesn't speak to that. Uh, you know, it, it just basically says any policy that might apply. Um, you know, if you want to stipulate with the plaintiff's attorney um, that that he's got enough money or the person or the company has got enough money to pay the, 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 whatever it is that the limit of the policy and that you don't want to um, advise your insurer and you don't want to get them involved. Um, you know, that's something that I think you have to work out with the plaintiff um, and just say, look, we'll write this letter that he agrees to the, uh, you know, the extent of a million dollars. I mean, I don't know, you know, what kind of a guarantee that would be that a plaintiff would agree to that personally. I, you know, how do you, this person could say they have the money and then they don't. So I'm not sure how exactly um, um, this would, you know, really pan out. Um, but I think that um, technically the way I read the statute, you know, and if others have opinions, but I, the way I read the statute, you just need to disclose the policy. Um, okay. Next. It seems that there's an increasing, there are increasing instances where a commercial auto trophy, oh, I had this one already. So, um, okay, let me close him out. Okay. What if any obligation does a potential defendant have to provide insurance information prior to suit? Okay, so again, I had previously answered this question. Um, you can, um, under the insurance law, you can demand um, that they disclose uh, the policy limits um, and they have to do that within a certain period of time. And I just don't remember the, the number of days, whether it's 45 days, 30 days, 60 days. I don't remember the number of days, but you do have to, they do have to disclose it, but they don't have to give you the policy until suit is filed. Um, okay. Uh, question. Instead of asking the insured whether he has other insurance policies, would it not be better to submit him uh, a list of all known policies and let him check out what he has or does not have? If so, the burden of due diligence is placed on the insured to research the disclosure. That's a great idea. You know, if you if you want to list them out, my only concern with that is then they're going to be limited to what you listed out. So 
you know, if you want to put what you, some of the policies that you think might apply and then say, or any other policies or something like that, maybe that's a, that's not a bad idea. Um, okay. So what is required to go into the certification by the client and attorney? Is there a form commonly used or can the attorney draft their own version? All right. So if you look at CPLR 3122B, that is the section and it tells you exactly what you're supposed to say. Um, so in the materials that that we circulated, I put it in there. Um, and it's a very short sentence. I think, you know, all it says is that you have that you're saying is that the information disclosed is complete and accurate. Um, and then, but you have to do it like an affidavit. It has to be an affidavit from the client and a separate affidavit from the attorney. Okay. Ruth Wiseman liked the uh, cicada idea. <laughs> okay. Is a carrier liable for a general business law 349 unfair business practices claim for a denial of coverage without a legitimate basis? All right, this is a this is a really um loaded, loaded question. So Martin, if you want to reach out to me, we can uh talk about that separately. All right. Um, couple more questions. So on the malpractice question, the renewal application requires disclosure of all claims made since prior application. Um, I must have missed a question here. I apologize, Matthew. Um, so why don't you reach out to me in an email as well, because it's only part of the question here, so I don't have the initial part of it. Okay, and the last question. Um, can a surplus lines of insurance for directors, officers on the board of a condo association contain an exclusion preventing a claim, preventing coverage on a claim by a particular unit owner. If that unit owner sues, do the director's officers have any insurance to disclose? All right. So again, Stephanie, why don't you reach out to me on that? Because that is a complicated uh, and loaded question as well. Um, so uh, just reach out to me in an email and I can... Um, and we can get together on the phone or you can uh, schedule a Calendly link with me and it'll be right in my calendar. Um, okay, as to the person who does not want to disclose the malpractice claim has to disclose it on renewal. All right, again, Matthew, just reach out because I'm not sure what the whole question is now. I apologize. If you're joining us via podcast, the second attendance verification code for today's course is P-O-D-9. Two, three. Again, that's P O D nine two three. just thank you, everybody, and um, I appreciate you taking your your afternoon to be with me. And um, and again, just reach out with any questions, and I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Mentor ESQ podcast, uh, starring Rosa Feeney, my partner, talking about the Comprehensive Insurance Disclosure Act. I'm sure you learned a ton, as did I when I listened to it live. And if you'd like to meet with Rosa, she offers lawyers complimentary one-on-one -on -one Zoom links the same way that I do. So just look in the course description for that link and you can meet with Rosa to go over any coverage issues and questions you may have. Thank you again for listening to the Mentor ESQ podcast. Please share it with your friends and give us some likes as that helps us spread the word. Have a great day.